Sardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. This week, I'm going to spend the majority of the episode talking about buy now, pay later payment methods. If you are in e-commerce fraud prevention or e-commerce payments, as I know most of my audience is because that's what I know, chances are your website is either already accepting BNPL payment methods or you're considering them as a company. This is something that is probably most explosive in the U.S., but actually there are several international BNPLs popping up as well. I actually just saw a a job posting for one in Latin America this morning, so they're popping up all over the place. This is not the topic I actually was originally planning on talking about this week, but because I've just received a lot of questions as well as had some really good conversations with some large merchants about this newer payment method, I thought it would be a good topic to discuss today and just kind of give my 10,000 foot view of the risks as well as the benefits and some things to consider if you're already accepting this payment method or if you are planning to. But before that, I wanted to make sure that if you have not yet listened to last week's episode of the podcast, I highly recommend it. In fact, go ahead and just pause this now and go to last week's. I, it was really fun. I got to be back together with my former podcast co-host, Brett Johnson from the online broadcast. If you are not familiar with Brett, he's a former cyber criminal who is never afraid to speak his mind. And we hopped on the podcast microphones again to talk about another pretty infamous former, in quotation marks, criminal and con man, Frank Abagnale, which if you've watched the movie Catch Me If You Can, which chances are you have, he's the main character. And this might be a bit of a spoiler alert, but we were talking about a book that was recently published about Frank that essentially debunks all of the claims he's made about his life as a criminal. This was a topic that we didn't talk about lightly. I made sure I read a big chunk of the book and read the bibliography, which is like 20 pages of teeny tiny font and single spaced. So it's a very well-researched book. I never want to contribute to gossip and hearsay, but I think it's pretty obvious. There's There hasn't been any proof shown on Frank's side for the things he's claimed that have happened. And had he sold it as fiction, it would have been a great story. But the problem is that he's been walking around for 40 plus years 
saying that these things really happened and that he really did them. And it still boggles my mind that no one before producing a Spielberg movie did enough research because there were already newspaper articles out there from the late 70s that the author, Alan Z. Logan, the author of this book, was able to find. They already called out Frank for lying about these things. So, you know, it's a good story, I guess. I mean, all of us in Frog kind of enjoy hearing about fraudsters and I guess them getting, you know, caught. But also, it's a good reminder that KYC is super important, whether it's to know your customers or whether it's to know who your company is bringing in to speak to the whole company, who you're giving access to, who you're giving information to. We just trust is something that should be earned and not given lightly. So anyway, that is, uh, I just wanted to highlight that I've gotten a lot of text messages and LinkedIn messages and emails from people after they've listened to that episode saying, holy something. Sometimes it's holy crap. Sometimes it's holy shit. I don't know. It's all kinds of things. I'm just, nobody can believe it. So if you haven't listened to that, I hope you do. Another thing to, another recommendation to watch, actually. So there's not as many books or, I guess there's several podcasts now about fraud, but not as movies or TV. There's just not that many. So kind of, I guess, sort of on the line of Catch Me If You Can, there's a new docuseries out on HBO Max that I really enjoyed. Full disclosure, I've only watched one episode so far, but I think it's really well done. It's called Generation Hustle, and I believe there are 10 episodes, and each one talks about a different hustle or crime. Sometimes it's con men, sometimes it's scheme, Ponzi schemes. There's all kinds. I actually messaged or texted Frank McKenna after watching the episode that I watched and was like, wow, you'll, I think you'll really like this. And he said, oh, I already binged every single episode last week. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, where have I been? But it did just come out recently. So you haven't been living under a rock if you haven't seen it yet. But the one episode I watched was actually on scam rap. And this is something that I've heard about here and there over the last few years, but quite honestly, didn't take seriously. Essentially, there is a subgroup. I don't know how to explain it, but there's a group of people who are rapping about fraud scams and how to hit specific companies. The raps don't really rhyme. They don't really seem to have much of a rhythm. I, I mean... Full disclosure, I grew up on 90s hip hop rap. So like, to me, that's what rap is. So scam rap is not my thing. However, I mean, at least the style of it isn't. However, it's awfully fascinating. And the episode follows this guy that there's some questions online of if he's even for real, which I can see that. But I think that whether he's for real or not, I think the topic is still interesting because he obviously has an audience. And that is, it follows this guy in inner city Detroit who is making millions of dollars by rapping about how to commit fraud on various websites. And it's very detailed and he uses some like lingo and, and stuff that, you know, they kind of decode on this episode. But the interesting thing is, is that he says he's not afraid of law enforcement because he's not technically committing the crimes. Now, obviously, somebody has to be committing the crime first to see if this method works before he raps about it. But he's claiming it wasn't him. And he also, in this episode, got a record deal like it, with a 
pretty big label. It's bonkers, but I think it's important to know about. I, like I said, I've heard about it a few times, like local law enforcement has mentioned it to me before. Somebody else sent me a YouTube clip like last year being like, Hey, did you hear about this? They're rapping about how to commit fraud at this mobile phone carrier. And I just didn't take it seriously. I thought the episode did a really good job of explaining things to people who just don't totally understand it. I mean, I felt like I learned a lot about fraud, even though I've been in it for 15 years, but that's also something I like about it. I'm an eternal learner. I think I once used the term on my previous podcast, um, on the fraudcast, that instead of being a know-it-all, I want to be a learn-it-all. And that was something that a guy I met at a coffee shop said, and I thought, I like that. So in the spirit of being a learn it all, I encourage you to check out Generation Hustle on HBO Max. Frank McKenna highly recommends the Ponzi scheme one towards the end with a college kid. I will be watching that this weekend. But uh, a lot of times after a very long, long days of talking about fraud forever, I don't always feel like watching a docuseries or a documentary about fraud, but I want to soon. And I hope you guys check it out too. And let me know what you think. So on that, really, I'm going to dive into buy now, pay later. Like I said, this wasn't my anticipated uh, topic, but I really let you guys decide what I talk about sometimes. And this is something that just keeps coming up. And Probably because in the last, I mean, especially the last year, but even the last two years, there have been a lot of alternative payment methods added to websites. It kind of reminds me of when PayPal first started. <laughs> this was a very long time ago, obviously, but when you would start to see not just credit cards being accepted, but PayPal as well. Well, now you're seeing by now pay later payment methods being accepted. And some of the names of these payment methods, just so you know what I'm talking about, not throwing anyone under the bus, are companies like Affirm, Afterpay, Klarna, Bread. I know I'm forgetting several others, but those are you know the main four that I hear about. I think Quad Pay is another one I've heard of recently. And really the way it works is it's almost like way, layaway, but you get the item up front. <laughs> For people in the U.S., you'll understand that. If you're outside of the U.S., it's installment payments. This is something that Brazil's been doing for years and years and years and other markets as well. So essentially, if a consumer selects a BNPL payment method at the time of checkout, then their payment agreement is with the BNPL company. The BNPL company pays the merchant up front, and then the consumer pays the BNL uh, company typically in four installments for their order. And to my knowledge, there's not a minimum on this. So I suppose you could probably buy something for like $40 and pay $10 a month. I do know for fraud mitigation purposes, some of them have tiered levels of limits for how much you can have out on installments at a time. But essentially, it, the customer is still getting the product. So the even though the payment is happening with a third party outside of the merchant's control, the merchant is still fulfilling that product or service and the payment is, you know, paid from the BNPL to the merchant. And then any billing issues that the consumer might have on paying those installments is up to the BNPL. 
So uh, there is an element of creditworthiness, though I don't believe a lot of them run credit reports. Uh, if any of them do, I, I don't, I'm not as familiar about each of their KYC processes. I do know that some of them are not as stringent on KYC as some merchants would like. One text message I got yesterday is that a company that is very large marketplace is considering bringing on a BNPL company and that this company is really has limited KYC. And so the marketplace is nervous about that. And KYC is know your customer. And just some of the things they said, they said really that all they can tell when they went through checkout is that they're checking their email, their name, their address, their phone number, uh, and their credit card. So pretty standard stuff. And this merchant in particular was asking, well, is there any liability for us? Because the majority of these BNPL payment methods, in order to be attractive for the merchants to offer, they are offering no fraud liability. So if the, and, and quite honestly, actually there wouldn't be right because the chargeback would be received by the BNPL company, not the merchant. But the BNPL company is not going to forward that onto the merchant and expect them to pay. I will say it's a bigger risk on the BNPL companies for chargebacks because, I mean, if you think about it, in theory, if somebody has paid, you know, three installments for one purchase and then they issue a chargeback for whatever reason, that's three chargebacks for one transaction. So there is some risk there for sure on the BNPL side. So I would obviously think that it would make a lot of sense for them to beef up their KYC as well as their fraud prevention, their AML, their anti-money laundering. There's a lot of things that concern me about this business model for the BNPL, but I'm not advising them. I should say full disclosure, I have advised one BNPL company. There do seem to be quite a few risks on the BNPL side for their company, just because they're getting more chargebacks, like I said, and then also they're taking on the liability, they're doing the um, vetting of the customers. But I think a lot of them are familiar with that and they've weighed the benefits. And a lot of times they are getting fees for the privilege of installment payments from the consumer. Some of them do have fees and incentives with the merchants. It just really varies. It's just, it's a different type of payment method. And so, but the majority of the risk is on the payment, on the payment method. And while there are some considerable risks about this payment method, the majority of them are on the BNPL company themselves. It's not necessarily risky for merchants to add. And chances are your marketing department was the one that came to you and said, Hey, we really need to do this for XYZ. And whenever there's a new payment method that comes on board, and I've been in this industry long enough to see several of them come and go, especially during like the mobile wallet wars of 2010 to 2015, there's a couple different ways that new payment methods get new merchants involved, as well as new consumers, because they really have to have both sides of the fence convert at relatively the same time. If you don't, if you're a new payment method and you don't have a lot of companies that accept it, you're not going to have a lot of consumers that think it's worth signing up for and vice versa, right? If you don't have a lot of consumers who are interested in using your payment method, then you're not going to have as many merchants who are going to want to. So the angle that a lot of them go to e-commerce companies with is we can increase your 
impact we can get you more customers that wouldn't normally purchase with you. So in this case, because consumers can pay for installments, and this is really popular with millennials and Gen Z, more than credit cards even, there's some analysis out there that this is going to be way more popular than credit cards in 20, 30 years. I'm probably misquoting those studies, but I know they're out there. I didn't pull them before this episode, but so they're, they're obviously the method itself is popular with consumers, especially 40 and under, but then getting merchants on board, you're really saying, Hey, we'll get you a younger audience. We'll be able to attract people to your site that wouldn't normally purchase with a credit card or a debit card. But oftentimes there's also other incentives floated by to merchants, especially the biggest companies, the enterprise level, which is who I, I work with the most. Sometimes there are checks written. Sometimes there are other incentives provided to make sure, or there's a revenue share, or there's, there's different types of ways to kind of scratch both backs, as they say. And then on the flip side, to get consumers, some of these newer BMPLs are offering like crazy. I mean, as one person said, she felt like they were printing money, you know, for $25 down, you can get a hundred dollar gift card or different things like that. So in, I think we're just going to keep seeing those be competitive, both with merchants and consumers, because I don't think a lot of merchants are going to want to offer like three or four BNPL options and consumers aren't going to want accounts with more than one or two. And if they do, then they might be getting in financial trouble. So we might see a few of them get weeded out over the next few years. That's what happened with the wallets. But it's just, it's something to be aware of because like I said before, chances are your company either accepts them now or they're going to. So what I really wanted to talk about is because the BNPL companies are taking the fraud liability, there's kind of this open question out there from merchants and I've received it like three times in the last week. And I wrote this one down because this is all I actually copied and pasted it from an email that I received this week. So it says our marketing department wants me to check off on accepting a BNPL payment method. The BNPL takes liability on fraud transactions, but I don't like the idea of allowing fraud in our platform even if we don't pay for the losses. Is there anything else I should think about? They also had a sentence in there about the KYC being pretty limited and a lot less than what they did for their platform and especially for their their own like private label card and things like that. Here is what I told them. This is something that we actually had a conversation about this on my bi-weekly retailer call a week and a half ago too. So like I said, I've started to see a theme, which is why I'm talking about this now. The KYCs vary pretty heavily on the BNPLs, as I mentioned, and I do think it's good for you to know what they're doing to know their customer and to extend credit to them. It's still going to be on your website with your brand. They're still going to enable people to obtain your products, especially if you are like a luxury brand and want to be exclusive. There's there's several that I know, and there's a few that I've worked with on pretty large projects where they don't want just anyone to be able to buy it their products. And so they may not be the right candidate for this. Or if they are, they might want to ensure that the BNPL partner that they choose is more selective uh, with their customers and have some limitations around them. I think because there's such a race and so much competition with these various BNPL companies, I think that's getting lost. Additionally, there are... 
at least two that really don't have good fraud prevention practices. I mean, there's a lot of fraud getting through that, honestly, fraud systems 10 years ago didn't catch, but most of the newer fraud systems would catch it very quickly. One example of that is Gmail email addresses. If you've been fighting fraud for more than five years, you know this trick. And that is when fraudsters put periods in different parts of the email address or, yeah, usually just periods for Gmail. You can have, say your email is, I don't know, hello at gmail.com. You could do H period E period L period L period O and period, I think. <laughs> period up for every letter. Just mix myself up. <laughs> but if you were to do it that way, the email still goes to the inbox for hello at gmail.com. It doesn't matter. So then you can just do H period and then ELLO at gmail.com. They all go to the same email address. But what happens is if a merchant has a legacy, especially a legacy system, I shouldn't say it's only legacy because I'm sure there's probably, you know, some newer technology that maybe possibly has it. I just don't want to be too general, but and pick on the legacy ones too much. But this has become a real problem. It's the fact that this way a fraudster only has to have one email address, but can create five or six different accounts on your end with your company because the fraud system picks up each unique email address as a unique customer. So even though it's the same email address that all of the emails are going to, and that's attached to the the person, they're setting up multiple accounts, typically for different credit cards and really running it through. And this is happening with at least one BNPL, I think the second one as well. I think one big problem is that a lot of the BNPL companies are advertising for a lot of jobs in fraud right now, which is absolutely wonderful, but it feels a little bit like they put the cart before the horse. Because if you already have a steep fraud problem, hiring for those positions now is a little delayed. And so, I mean, that doesn't mean they don't have anyone driving the bus because I know that they do. And at some of them, I do know them. And at least at one company, I think they're doing a really good job and they really thought about risk and fraud ahead of time when implementing their system and before really getting big. But some of these other ones are kind of catching up. And so, they're being reactive. And we all know that reactive fraud prevention can be really expensive. So I think it's important when your company is looking at BNPL payment method, if you are able to have a say in it, which I know is kind of another whole other topic about getting management buy-in, which continues to be on my list for podcast topics, but keeps getting bumped a little bit. It's check out their KYC policies, check out what they're doing, find out what fraud prevention they're using. How big is their team? Is there somebody on their fraud prevention team that you can talk to and share information with? It'd be really beneficial for you to have an open line of communication with all of your alternative payment methods and then their fraud team, because you're going to attract the same fraudsters. I think it's really important to know what they're doing, even if they're taking the liability. I think there is this attitude of, well, if someone else is going to pay for the transactional fraud, then let's just pass them through all day long and get all those sales. And I understand a portion of that, but there are some pretty big downsides to that. And one is your brand impact, obviously, especially if you have a well-known brand name with your company. 
but even branded items, I mean, but even if you don't, it's these days, merchants are being talked about, not just in dark web criminal forums. Now it's on telegram channels that are public. It's on discord channels that are public um, and private also. It's on social media and they're saying, Hey, company X is wide open, which is criminal speak for go, you know, just <laughs> go to town on stolen credit cards or ATO or whatever method they share. And a lot of times when these things are posted in criminal forums, it's interesting because they'll say, I mean, this goes for refund fraud as well as for carding fraud and buy for you fraud and ATO fraud and all the different fraud. A lot of them have like dollar limits or they have instructions on how to hit a specific merchant. So sometimes, sometimes a post would be like an example would be a uh, company Y get, you can get up to three items for up to $200. Make sure that your billing and shipping address is the same and your email address is aged for more than a month. Things like that, right? So they're providing like specific attributes that are needed in order to pass through your system. When it comes to alternative payment methods, this is where I find it interesting because there are some merchants that fraudsters will say the only way you can defraud this company is through this third party payment method. Don't even try with credit cards. Don't even try any other way. Just the only way is essentially through this side door. And that, and I know from being behind the scenes that that's because a lot of times the side door, so to speak, doesn't have the same, same level of fraud capabilities. They also don't know a specific merchant's fraudsters the way that specific merchant does. So for any kind of alternative payment method, they're looking at this huge 10,000 foot view, really, you know, ecosystem. And they're looking at all kinds of customer behavior, good and bad customer behavior. And it varies by store and it varies by product and it varies by price and all kinds of other things. And a lot of times they can make really good decisions and they have great data, but other times they're not going to know that this specific company has fraudsters that always use a password with the body of water in them, or they're not going to know that this particular fraud ring uses a specific domain that's very unique or whatever it is, right? They're just not going to know your specific fraudsters the way that you do. And so a lot of times, if there's a company that's really good at identifying fraud, what it'll say about them on these forums is the only way you can defraud them is through this third party because the third party isn't as they aren't scrutinizing it as much. They don't have the same systems. They don't have the same knowledge. They don't have the same manpower and whatever the reason is. Right. So it gives fraudsters the side door and that's really extra challenging when that payment method doesn't take liability because you're on the hook, even though they're the ones who have all the data about the device, about the person. And ultimately, usually that alternative payment method is making the decision, a pass fail decision on that order. But at the end of the day, the merchant's on the hook for that transaction value amount when and if a chargeback comes. But when the liability gets shifted, now you've got a situation where fraudsters are saying, hey, the only way to get through to this company is through this side door with this BNPL company. And if the merchant also doesn't care, they're not screening those orders from the BNPL company because they don't have transactional liability, then essentially they are allowing fraud on their system. Some people would say, well, why does that matter? 
because it's not our money. One is the brand, right? Whenever these are posted, especially in social media or in general population places, forums, etc., people are going to see, oh, this company is vulnerable and this company is vulnerable using this payment method. Whether they use it or not, right, it's going to tarnish your brand. But also, it has a lot of brand impact for those that are selling their own brand name items, as well as just in general. Hey, this company is really easy to hit, so to speak. And that happened last summer. There was two, there were two big box stores that were targets really bad for alternative payment method fraud. It was just very easy to commit up to like $10,000, I think. And a lot of them were on large electronics and TVs and et cetera. So I think it's important to know that fraudsters aren't looking at, oh, how can we defraud this payment method? They're looking at how can we defraud this merchant? And usually it's because they're actually wanting to know how can we get this one specific item? So that's kind of how that works. The biggest impact and the biggest thing that I wanted to kind of give everybody a heads up on when it comes to accepting BNPL is this idea of whitelist fraud. So This is a term that Brett and I kind of made up, I think, on the Fraudcast about a year and a half ago, and it was working a little bit differently than it is now with BMPL. But the way we talked about it at the time is that there was, there were merchants that were using the same fraud provider that had a consortium feature and fraudsters had learned, hey, if you make a purchase at company A for like $10 on a prepaid card, then it makes you have prior good orders in this fraud system. And so then you can go to this other company, like company B, and place a $1,000 order on a stolen card. And because there were no chargebacks that came in for that smaller order at that other merchant through the consortium, and everything else is new to the system, or it's been seen on this prior good order, then the system is going to auto pass it. It's not even going to go through manual review. And this has hit some merchants pretty hard. And there's at least one specific merchant that I know as recently as two months ago said that they're still really, really fighting this. It did seem to be happening on, it seemed like every merchant I talked to about it was using the same core fraud provider. And chances are fraudsters were able to, because of CCPA in California, the privacy laws in California, as well as GDPR in Europe, fraudsters are now able to know which fraud providers you're sharing your customer data with. And so if they start to see a pattern and see, oh, we can do this method with these companies because they use this fraud provider, that's how you become a target for that. So whitelist fraud isn't super, super common, but that's what we were seeing Now what we're seeing and what's kind of being reported to me through various sources that are on the front lines, and I love all of my sources, I mean, a lot of you guys are friends too, is that essentially this exact type of fraud method is occurring using BNPL methods, but on the same website. So here's a scenario. Say the fraudster makes a purchase using a BNPL payment method on your website. And it goes through fine because the BNPL company approves it. Chances are your fraud system with your policies and processes probably wouldn't have approved that order or they've tried before, but they see, oh, okay, we can go through this quote unquote side door. So they go through the side door, they place one or two purchases on their account through that and they get approved because again, 
merchant doesn't take liability. BNPL takes the liability so they make the decision. It passes, it goes through, it's fine. Well, now what a few merchants are starting to see, especially those that have high dollar items, like very high dollar items, is that a fraudster will establish an account on BNPL and have a couple fairly low dollar orders go through just fine. And then they will change their payment method in their account to be a credit card. And it's typically a stolen credit card. And they will then place a purchase for thousands of dollars or very high dollar amount. And next thing you know, you get a charge back. So this is something I really wanted to make sure that merchants are thinking about when the decision has to come and say, well, do we add this? Do we not? And I'm definitely not saying not to do it. I think there's a lot of good benefit and it's another way to keep up with your competitors as well, because it is becoming so prevalent. I feel like almost every time I place an order online at this point, I'm getting some little note saying you can, you know, buy now and pay later with this payment method. So it's a very competitive market, but I'm definitely not saying don't do it. I'm saying be aware that this is happening. And there are some systems that you're able to disable prior good orders. I'm using quotation marks, but I know you can't see me. <laughs> so prior good orders or different systems call it different things. And you could disable prior good orders on the specific BNPL payment method. So even if somebody placed an order on your system using the BNPL payment method and it was approved, they won't be able to place an order on your system with that good reputation. They won't be whitelisted. Instead, it'll go through the typical scoring pattern. So that, because there will absolutely be good customers that will start out using a BNPL payment method and then switch to a credit card. So I wouldn't say that that behavior is risky on its own, but it's that factor with others that does make it risky. And then it puts you on the hook. And then it's also slightly compromising the integrity of not only your fraud system, but again, the ecosystem, if you're within a consortium model. Uh, and this is something that I've talked about. I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast or not, but uh, I think consortiums are a great thing. I think they especially were like game changing 10 or 12 years ago when they started. I'll never forget the three event ticketing companies that really started out with, I think the first company to have a consortium, that was really their value proposition for their newer fraud tool. And these three companies were just getting, they were all getting hit by the same people. And so they were really revolutionary in being able to work together and have their systems all talking to each other without sharing any specific data with each other. And so it's been a great thing. However, when there's opinions and not facts in those systems, it can get kind of cloudy. So what I mean by that is every company has different standards for how they market an order as fraud. There's also a delay, right? There's you know, oftentimes a 60, 90 day delay of when you find out something's fraud. And that's a long time for a fraudster to wreak havoc, not only on your website, but other websites that are using the same fraud technology. So it has its deficits. I, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be actually interviewing Uri Arad, who is co-founder of one of my uh, client companies, Identic, and they've created a um, anonymous 
consortium type company, but it's not a consortium, but it provides fact, not opinion. And that's a big reason why I'm working with them. This is not meant as a plug. I do think that consortiums still play a great, great role, but these type of things, like when we are scoring previous good orders pretty highly, no matter what their payment method is, that can cause more problems than good. So I think everything just kind of has to be looked at with nuance. It's not black or white. So certainly if you have a consortium model and your tool, I am not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying, be aware that these things happen, that fraudsters are really reacting to the things we put in place. And it 100% is a cat and mouse game. There's a lot of newer fraud methods that really only exist because we've been good at our jobs, not just merchants, but also the technology companies that support us. So I certainly, I mean, not trying to like put anyone through the mud. It's just, I think it's important to know that not all systems are the same. And also that this can happen because like I said, this is a question that I've gotten more times this week than I don't even know if I can count them. I probably could if I had a minute, but And really, it centers around this question of if they take the liability, should I just turn a blind eye? And I think what I would say to that, in short, is be aware that whitelist fraud can happen. Be aware of that and look at your systems, assess if you can maybe like segregate the orders from the BNPL payment method or put them in a sandbox or somewhere else where that's not commingling with your own data and adding positive attributes in the scoring system because they were able to get orders passed through a fraud system that may not be at the same level as yours. And also a fraud team that just doesn't know your customers and your fraudsters the way you do. So it's all relative. It's all worth a grain of salt, but I think it's, these are important things to know about because if you don't know about it, you can't stop it. Another thing I wanted to add, if you are considering a BMPL company, is to really look at the contract. This came up also on the retailer call that I hosted a week and a half ago when we were talking about some fraud spikes happening on at least two BNPL companies right now that merchants are seeing. And that is that the BMPLs are starting to really feel the pain of chargebacks. And like I said, a lot of them are adding to their workforce and their fraud teams. It'll take a few months to get everybody up to speed and get processes in place and all of that, but they are starting to feel this pain. And so at least one of them has been changing contracts and I'm not trying to imply that it's nefarious or anything, but I guess what I mean by that is you could have two merchants that signed up with the same BMPL company a month apart and they could have completely different terms. I think several of them, or I shouldn't say several, at least two of them have been kind of changing their contracts for newer accounts because they're realizing that this liability for online transactions is really expensive. And so I know that at least one of them is changing it, the fine print to basically say that they will only take the liability as long as the merchant will provide them with the transaction details within 24 hours of the BMPL company contacting the merchant and letting them know. So essentially if a chargeback comes in a month after the transaction to the BNPL for fraud, the BNPL contacts the merchant and asks them for the transaction information, which is a little fuzzy for me just because I think the BNPL company has all of the authentication information for the user. But I think 
what they're asking for is what specifically was purchased, where was it shipped to, did the address change after they placed the order through the payment method, because those systems are separate. So there's no visibility from one company to the other into those um, specifics. And so if the merchant doesn't provide that transaction information to the BNPL within 24 hours, the BNPL no longer takes liability on that chargeback and they reserve the right to debit the merchant. And this is happening to at least one merchant that was not aware. When they first started having conversations with the company, they were under the impression and they were told that there's no, it's not limited liability. It's full liability coverage for fraud related chargebacks. Once they signed the contract and it went into play and went into production, a chargeback was issued. They didn't respond. I, I don't know. It was a whole thing. Like they were supposed to log into a portal and they didn't know they were supposed to. So anyway, the merchant got hit with these fees and they're now pretty upset that they weren't aware. So I think the other thing is whenever it comes to contracts, I know that you guys have awesome legal departments and they're super important. But I also think it's really important for people with knowledge of the payment system and knowledge of the fraud system to look at these contracts as well, because lawyers don't always know what they're looking for. They don't always understand just how much money that could represent, or they don't really understand what something means kind of in the wild, or they don't really know what that means, like when things are running and and the engines are going through. So I think it's really, I know that it's hard sometimes to get in on those conversations. I actually spoke at an event for the Loyalty Security Association recently about getting manager buy-in. And there's a lot of tips that I will be providing on a future episode. But I think the first one would just be to say, hey, you know, I've I've heard that other e-commerce companies are experiencing some challenges with contracts once they go into production, like once things are running after it's signed, I really would hate for that to happen at our company. So I'm offering my services just to kind of provide a look at it through a fraud lens because I'll be the an impacted user of this and it could represent a lot of money for our company. I've been brought in by companies as a consultant to look at some of these contracts, especially around indemnification and liability, because I do think that there, I'm not going to say there are tricks being played, but just sometimes different sides of the contracts have different interpretations of what those mean. So those are just things to to really consider and, and fully understand that contract. So that is primarily what I was going to talk about. I think I got the majority of it out. I would love to hear from you if this is relevant, if it was helpful, if there's other pieces of information that you are hoping to learn about buy now, pay later payment methods that I can help with. I will also be writing an article for CNP on this topic. So definitely if there's other information you have on it, uh, I'd love to hear it to provide, you know, even more, a little more and different information for that article. So with that, I'm going to let you all go fight fraud another day, but I appreciate you listening to this episode and hope that you found it informative and I will talk to you next week.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.